This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, What's this game? This is Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm Game ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, we have another special episode and something that's been really near and dear uh, to my heart, I would say, since I got done residency training. And you guys know I always bring someone on much smarter than me, uh, much more in-depth when it comes to these things. And I have the man, the myth, Mr. Ron Feldman himself. Uh, go, go ahead and introduce yourself and, and tell, the, tell the audience a little bit about you. Wow. Well, I'd like to. I think I'm blushing too much right now. That was a that was a big introduction. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my name is Ryan Feldman. I'm an emergency medicine pharmacist at Freighter Hospital. Uh, I'm one of our clinical toxicologists with the Wisconsin Poison Center and an assistant professor at uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin. Perfect. And you also has a few things that you do on the side. Oh, Again, a yes. fellow podcaster himself. Go ahead and shout that out. Yeah, so I have a toxicology podcast where I bring on toxicologists, pharmacists, and physicians, uh, and we dive into some of the fun toxicology literature and do some teaching based off of, uh, we try to stump each other with some clinical cases and kind of tackle some questions on the internet about drugs. Uh, it's fun. It's called The Poison Lab, and you can find it at www.thepoisonlab.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Perfect. Again, I just, I've been waiting to, I was telling you earlier, I've been waiting to have this come on and I'm always just super excited about the things that you guys are doing. And uh, I really want to dive a little bit into like your site. And again, this is going to be released around the time that residency applications come out. You know, everyone's going to have the places that they're looking at. They want to go to the Midwest. And can you just tell us a little bit about Freighter in the hospital, your patient population, and just the program in itself? Absolutely. Uh, so Freighter Hospital is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I know a lot of people think cheese and beer when they think Wisconsin, but Milwaukee is actually a city of about a million people. Um, and Freighter is the really only large academic medical center uh, there. And we're about a 700-bed hospital. We're stroke and STEMI, large transplant and oncology population. And our ED is, uh, I believe, goodness, I'm going to have to do some fast math here. I think we're 52 beds, 48 beds plus a trauma bay or a resuscitation bay with a few extra. And uh, what's kind of unique about our program is we are the only level one trauma. There's only two in the state, and we're the only one in the southeastern region in as well as in this large city that has a per capita shooting rate that's higher than some areas like Chicago. So we get a huge amount of trauma at our at our uh, area. And then um, we also work a lot. We, we have some community hospital sites that we work with as well. And we work a lot with our EMS uh, crew because the Medical College of Wisconsin provides all of the uh, EMS backup for Milwaukee County. So we get a lot of fun, unique experience in uh, EMS and trauma, as well as your regular uh, critically ill kind of emergency department patients uh, that we see. That's dope. Again, so again, we, we see like that population, heavy trauma, poison control center, all those phenomenal things that everyone's really looking for. What about your PGY2 program? It has a few unique components to it as well that I think many people probably want to hear as far as like everyone thinks that you have PGY1, you have one place, but you guys do a little something different. Yeah, yeah. So 
our PGY2 really gets to tap into a lot of the uh, unique aspects that we have available at our site. So for one, um, you know, I'm a graduate of our PGY2 emergency medicine program. I was the first one to go through the program. Um, and with my experience that I was able to get with our longitudinal toxicology rotation, where we actually have our residents at the poison center every single Thursday, as well as a one month block, getting experience managing poisoning patients, it really sets them up pretty well to have a good amount of experience to sit for um, or eventually uh, qualify to take the American Board of Applied Toxicology exam, which was sort of my career path into toxicology. Um, So they get to hang out at the Poison Center every Thursday with me, um, as well as work with me in the emergency department for half of of my shifts. Uh, And then they also get to do some fun EMS things, uh, such as Flight for Life, they do uh, ride-alongs as well as some pre-hospital ambulances, um, do really just a whole breadth of things. Uh, they work in the main campus emergency department and then do some rotations at our community uh, EDs too to get that experience. Uh, so we really try to keep it varied and have them highly integrated into the different services we have. And then the last big thing is we actually take two residents each year. I think we're one of only a few programs that had that's been doing that recently. So we love our program. We love our residents who come through and we love seeing them su- succeed. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's where I've been the fortunate beneficiary of your, your, your training with my previous PGY2 coming and being phenomenal. And I was like, man, it's like, <laughs> Should we graduate you half the time? You know, you, you guys, you're in great training. So you yeah, you definitely got a good right one. Now. So, okay, let's go ahead and jump into the the, the crux of the matter. We're going to get ready to take a quick pause. But before we get into that, just introduce a topic today. We're going to talk about pharmacist medication administration and formalizing that process, which you guys have done. But before we do that, let's take a quick pause. Do you have the answers? Whether you're taking board certification exams, on rounds with your team, or in the middle of a resuscitation, being confident in your answer is of the uttermost importance. One of the most confusing areas of healthcare is which medication to use in which situation with countless of drugs and choices to choose from. And that's where pharmacy and acute care university comes in hand. Also known as PACU is an online system designed to help you maximize your confidence and the use of medications so that you can perform when it matters the most. With hundreds of hours of content via master classes, clinical case questions, a community of experts, and other references to help you save time and anxiety, PACU is here to help you. So we're hoping to see you in the PACU. All right, guys, we're right back to this, and I'm ready to get you guys involved in this process that we've been talking about for quite a while. Everyone probably gives a little epi here and there during the code if someone's busy. People are maybe pushing those RSI meds and the nurse is documenting for you. But if you take a little close peek at your your your, your board of pharmacy scope of practice, you may see, like I've seen in my last two states, for drug administration as part of your scope. And if you ask people who don't work in the ED and you ask people who don't, you know, work in those environments, they will tell you that you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you probably shouldn't do that. But I, I think a lot of us in the ED, I think this got looked at some years back and probably look at it again. Uh, a lot of us are giving medication as part of our scope. We've been trained to do so. We've had nursing sign off on these things. And I think when it comes to formalizing the process, that's something that a lot of people are interested in, but don't know where to start. Uh, so, Ron, this is something you guys recently went through. And I think most of the community need to hear 
kind of what you guys have done because you're already killing it when it comes to just your, your your practice at at freighter in the patient population, all those things. But can you kind of discuss the background of making your pharmacy administration guidance? And again, it could be a guideline or protocol or just some type of structure. Can you give us some background on what kind of initiated this? Absolutely. Uh, this is really something that I've been trying to get done since I was a PGY2. And it maybe could have gotten done a little bit faster. Uh, maybe I was dragging my feet every once in a while. Um, but this is something that's sort of been a target for us for quite a while. Uh, the reason that we wanted to do this is that, just like you said, many people are already doing this or we're going to be called on to do this in a scenario where patient demand outstrips available skilled resources. You got a nurse or uh, doing uh, putting pads on a patient while uh, a ca- cardiac arrest is going on, and you have just you, a nurse, and a provider in the room, well, okay, should you put the pads on or should you push the epi? I mean, it's kind of a question. You're going to be called on this at times to to really change the course of a patient's outcome. And when that happens, you shouldn't have to question whether or not your institution is going to support the decision you're making to make a patient better. So we really wanted to get this in place. Um, and I, I can give you a little bit of background on kind of what we originally had. So in, in, in as a PGY2, I actually have emails still uh, where I did a survey to ACCP to find out, hey, are other people, are you pushing medications as part of your, your practice? And I got a variety of answers, uh, you know, from different states. Some people are saying, well, we don't actually have a law against it. So we sort of just assumed that it was okay. And they started doing it. Uh, Tennessee, they said they had reached out to their board of pharmacy and uh, asked them. And the board of pharmacy responded and said, hey, if you have a CPA in place, we don't see any issues. And, you know, so there was a lot of different ways people were addressing it. uh, And some of those ways to ensure that you had appropriate liability coverage or by putting a policy in place in the hospital. Um, so we had a law in Wisconsin that allowed us to do any act as dictated by a physician. So we were running in, as a practice for a long time, we were kind of priming pumps and starting infusions. We weren't doing a lot of pushing of IV drugs unless there was literally no one there, uh, no one else there to do it uh, or no available hands. And if that happened, I was like, well, we're we're quasi covered by this kind of law in 2013. But then in 20, uh, I believe it was actually in 2018, that actual uh, right in the pharmacy administrative code, it says we we had a new law implemented that said um, pharmacists can administer non-vaccine injectables. So sub-Q, IM, IV drugs. as long as they meet certain criteria. The impetus of that law was feedback from the pharmacy community to our uh, big kind of um, lobbying society, which is the Pharmacy Society of Wisconsin. Uh, They got input from their members. And it wasn't just emergency department members. There's actually people in the community that want to be able to give IV infusions uh, or give intramuscular injections as needed. Uh, so we actually had ED pharmacists as well as community pharmacists and ambulatory care pharmacists coming together to the Pharmacy Society of Wisconsin and letting them know, 
we want to be able to practice the top of our license and give medicines to patients who need it. And they carried the brunt of actually writing the law and lobbying our legislators to actually get this put into uh, the pharmacy administrative code, which can't thank them enough for that. Uh, where they, you know, they have lawyers on hand that can do that kind of stuff. We're not necessarily in there, but when that law came out, it really was very hard for our administrative, uh, for administration to say anything beyond, "Oh yeah, you're legally allowed to do this. Why aren't you doing it? It's right here in the law." So that was a big push um, in terms of why we finally got our formalized policy into place. And I can say I did try multiple times before that law exists to get a CPA into place so that we could give medications in the event that a patient needed a you know life or limb-saving intervention and there was no available skilled hands. And we did get some pushback uh, originally but once this law came into place, it was much harder for that to happen. So that's something that's really key. And sometimes I think that a lot of us in the ED, we're just like, we're just focused on doing our thing. And sometimes people can be very uh, interested in like the pharmacy law and the things that happen on the, you know, the state Capitol Hill, so to say. And, and some people cannot. And this is one of those cases where you really, you guys really took something and band it together as pharmacists to make something unique that traditionally ED pharmacists that I know of, I would say, are not saying, oh, I'm going to Capitol Hill to talk to the lobbyists about getting something changed. Like, that's dope. So that's something I, I, you guys. I don't want to take credit for going to Capitol Hill. I definitely benefited, but there was a lot of people. I, I may have voiced my opinion. Uh, but I don't think I was the inciting spark that brought it off. It, but it's good. It, it's just something that that happened that, I, and you think about this now. It's like okay, mandatory care pharmacists they have their CPAs. Like everyone have these things in the community, um, infusion centers. Like from an oncology standpoint, like all these things can be beneficial to our patients, and and it doesn't always have to be well. There's only the janitor can get the epi. You know, do we can go that route versus. <laughs> You know, I I think about this sometimes and I say, I really sit down and I say, I believe that the pharmacist, especially the 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 pharmacist that's been either trained, you know, with extra extra years of residency or who has on the job training and experience in these situations are probably the best person to handle medications, I would say. Um, some people go back and forth that, but I, I consider the fit situation like I had a case where we want to do high dose epi, I mean, high, high dose um, nitroglycerin for our escape patient. That, that was communicated once with our, our nursing colleague. Again, she was newer, new grad, and she looked at, you know, her references and was like, oh, I can't start it that high. I'm, like, I'm just not doing it. And it's like, uh, I, I, I don't have time to like, I can educate, but it's just like, <laughs> it's a lot going on right now versus a situation where the same thing happened. I was like, hey, I'm going to do this one and I'm going to talk through it. And it's like, everyone's so much more comfortable. I know exactly what I want to do. I know exactly why. And I can teach out loud and explain this to my nursing staff, my physician colleagues, because my physician colleagues may have to do this themselves in the community. They may be ones doing that. So I think about those, you know, high risk type situations where I know exactly how this needs to be done. And I can explain while I'm doing it without compromising patient care. And those are the moments that things happen. Or we have a patient with like a difficult intubation where you can't push the paralytic immediately. 
you may have to give your ketamine, get things situated, get the patient position right. And then once they see the cords, which I can also see because the VL is in front of me, then push it. You know, it's, it's a lot of stuff that's going on that I think that realistically, if we're we have support from administration, this can be something where my physician colleagues has mentioned consistently at multiple institutions that this is something they want us doing. And actually in other places supported us actually making a policy to make it so where in these more critical times, a pharmacist can be involved in it. And my nursing colleagues can do other things that they're much better at. Like I'm, I'm never going to, you know, be able to grab, grab the central line kit or set up an A-line. I'm never going to be able to do those things. So I think it's pretty cool that we can, we took something that was a clinical issue. You guys got some, you know, political backing from that and then made an institutional policy behind all of that to support something you guys really wanted to do. So I think that's something that's that's really key. And it really, you, you really already hit my next question as far as what was the, the motivation for that. You kind of hit that already. Um, but I really want to hear like your thoughts when it comes to this. I, I have a big mouth and I can talk all day, but what is your thoughts on pharmacists if they're if there's no law in place that says they can't do this, what's your thoughts on pharmacists just being involved in the medication administration process in general? Yeah, well, that's a great point. I mean, there this is a weirdly polarizing practice. And to me, it's not, but it is to others. And I, we can get into this in a bit. You know, there definitely were barriers and it wasn't just, hey, you know, the law says you can't. It was even, you know, pharmacists didn't want to, certain pharmacists don't want to do it. Uh, you know, pushback from certain nursing leadership. There's definitely hesitancy amongst people. Anytime you're going to roll out a new practice that can potentially change the way you operate on a regular basis as well. Um, you know, in my opinion, we, I, we are at the bedside in the emergency department. We are there for critically ill resuscitation. We are, I, I even did a Twitter poll just recently because I wanted a little bit of data. I was just saying, hey, ED pharmacists, do you show up to the bedside to prepare medications for critically ill patients or ACLS? 97% of like 350 votes said yes. Okay, so maybe like 10 people aren't. I understand we're still implementing services places. Some people are, you know, getting foot in the door with med rec and things like that. But most of us, almost all of us are at the bedside anyways, preparing medications. And I do hear sometimes some pushback from people that, well, you know, we're, we should be doing cognitive services. And yeah, we absolutely should do cognitive services. You know where the best place to do a cognitive service is? At the bedside, where you're educating not just the provider, but the nurse, the tech, and the literature behind the intervention that you're pushing into the patient, or I'm preparing the drug, giving it to them, telling them the exact strength and how fast they should give it and what it's compatible with. It's sometimes a little bit easier if I'm just the one giving the drug and they don't have to ask me those questions in the first place. So. If you want to look at it from cognitive services, well, if all you do is cognitive services, but you're also at bedside preparing drugs for ACLS situations, well, drug preparation is honestly, anyone can do that. So if you really want to be, you know, a value add, an extra set of hands in a scenario where there are more patient needs and skilled hands, to really practice that, I think the top of our license, we need to be able to give medications too, not just be there to talk about. That's something that I talk about. And I, this is, you guys hear me say this whole phrase of brain to vein. Uh, I really mean that. So we talk about cognitive services, but can you take what's in your head, that provider's head and 
put it into the patient's vein. Um, there are times where I can sit beside the team lead on the ACLS and the nurse wants to do the medication. Drawing the medications up are not the most challenging part. Um, I, I think I, I try to let people know that when I'm when I'm doing the medications, I'm doing the, the drawn up part. That's just that's just a means to an end. I really want to think about all the things that, like, okay, we've done this, we've done that. The next step is going to be this. And the question that my residents hate that I ask them, I say, what's the medication? Not now, not next, but in 15 and 30 minutes. And I can do all of that. And I, again, I've been trained to do all those things while taking care of the medication administration side to offload our nursing staff, offload our physician staff. And then they can be more comprehensive in their thought process because they know not only the medication is taken care of, it's very well taken care of the entire medication administration process. And I've heard pharmacists say, oh, we got to stay in our lane. And I'm like, what? To me, again, I may ruffle some feathers. You guys probably going to send me some hate mail. If there's a medication involved, that's our lane. <laughs> Immediately. Exactly. As soon yeah. as the medication gets involved and it enters the patient, that's clearly where we're going to, and especially in these scenarios, critically ill, high intense, there's no room for mistakes. And the entire reason that ED pharmacists are in the ED was in early 2000s when we start looking at all the mistakes that happened in the ED. So again, like you said, the Twitter polls, again, the shows, again, the things you guys doing show that being at the bedside, drawing these medications up, and when the scenario is right, I'm not saying that I have to push the 50th fentanyl for the, the level three trauma. You know, that's not necessarily what I'm advocating for. But these more severe, high intensity, I would say highly prone to medication era uh, opportunities is where I think we shine the brightest when it comes to this. So I think it's unique that it is very polarizing. And as you mentioned, um, we can kind of get to this next, like as far as the. We, the, the challenges that you foresee other institutions going through, if they're like interested in this and the challenges that you went through, because I went through a significant amount and they were actually very surprising. Yeah. I'd actually love to dive into that. I, you know, I will say there, there absolutely there's, there's kind of a dichotomy of, okay, you know, are we doing cognitive services? Or are we not? But we're already, you know, sit moving to the bedside, just like you said. We kind of built, and then you, once you're doing this medis, medication administration, I think people worry about the slippery slope. They say, well, okay, now I'm doing this. I'm going to do 50 of fentanyl. I'm going to be doing every single tetanus and every trauma, I'm gonna, just like you said. So you can build some fail safes into that. And that's exactly what we did because, yes, we want to be there to help when the need calls. We don't want to be, you know, always feeling the need. That's the balance. Um, so we actually built in a few fail-safes. Essentially, we need to be there when we need to be there. So we wrote into our policy that we're going to give medications when no other skilled hand is available. And we basically mean that there's no other nurse or you know physician or anesthesia who can push the drug because they're available. They are tied up doing another task. They are you know, putting in any line, intubating, you know, throwing pads on, whatever actually needs to happen. That is when we will step in. We also are limiting it. Uh, this is a little nitty gritty on the Wisconsin law, but, you know, you have to actually have done some training, uh, which actually our PGY2 residents developed for the state, which was kind of cool. Um, so you have to have done some training and then had some sign offs and be certified. 
uh, per our policy. So not every single pharmacist is even going to be able to do it. Um, and then we're limiting it to certain areas for right now as we roll it out, specifically the emergency department and the resuscitation bay. Uh, but that might change as we you know, understand the need or the value add this has in responding to other things like out of hospital rapids and things like that. Um, so there are ways to get away from like, oh, if we start doing this, we're just going to be pushing every antibiotic. Um, and and I think a lot of that's just clear expectation setting with nursing. And that was kind of one of our challenges, right? So how do we get buy-in from pharmacists who are resistant to this because they think it's going to pull them away from their queue or pull them away from their cognitive services? Well, we managed those expectations. This is not for every single drug that is ordered. It is in a scenario when life or limb is threatened and we laid it all out in our actual policy you know it's traumas acls rsi anaphylaxis you've got your, your standard things for there's an emergency going on that threatens abc or uh, extremities and we use that to help show the people who would be doing this policy you're not going to be tied up every single day adding hours of work pushing drugs the other thing we ran into is well not everybody wants to do this and that's okay, right? The pharmacist scope has a lot of things, and I certainly don't do every single thing that's in the pharmacy. I don't really dispense meds and uh, from a you know outpatient side, right? So people are going to have varying attitudes, and I think that's tough because you're rarely going to get consensus in a department, anyways, of of educated professionals. Everyone's going to have an opinion, uh, but we actually got around that a little bit by we actually have badges that i can actually show you my badge i guess i don't know if it'll pop up on here but we have a badge add to it that says certified med administrator uh so it's med administration certified so that way the nurses can actually identify who's been trained and who can actually do this service when they're in the emergency department so we basically got around it by saying all right if you don't want to do it then don't do it but those who do want to do this, those who want to be able to extend their practice to this additional degree to help patients, you are able to practice at your full scope. So that helped us as well. Um, but that helped us get around kind of pharmacist uh, hesitancy and lack of consensus and buy-in, which I think a lot of people will run into. But I don't think that should stop people who are interested in this from pursuing it. The other things we ran into, which I think a lot of people will see, um, we had issues originally with risk management and senior nursing leadership who got concerned. So we developed our CPA. We ran it up um, to the ED nursing and our ED colleagues. They're like, yeah, this sounds great, right? Because in the ED, people who work in there, they recognize how how valuable this could be in the setting of a mass casualty where we're running out of people to give drugs. We're in the setting of just a regular busy trauma Tuesday. Uh, but then once it goes up the ladder, people who might not necessarily be in that work setting and understand how things tend to go, they say, well, this seems like we're adding undue risk to the nurses or this or that. And that was kind of tough. We actually always had great pharmacy administrative support, which really appreciate, I mean, unbelievably supportive uh, managers and, and pharmacists we have here to let us do really whatever we set our hearts on. Uh, but we were running into our, our internal customer pushback from not only nursing leadership, but risk management. So much so that 
at one point we just said, well, the emergency department nursing staff and the emergency department physician staff are on board. You are hesitant, but does that mean you're the final no? And their answer was no. If you wanted to do it, you could do it. But I, I think they're used to pushing people back. I, I'm not going to speak on their behalf, but that that's kind of how it, we we did end up doing what's called a risk assessment, where we looked at the pros, we looked at the cons, we wrote it all out, and we had it assessed by risk. We had it assessed by the ED nursing and the ED leadership and our pharmacy administrators, so that everybody was on the same page about what the potential risks were. And that was enough for uh, at least them to say, all right, let's move forward and we'll just keep an eye on it to make sure things are going well. Uh, and I think really those were the big barriers we ran into um, was just making sure risk was okay with it, getting all the pharmacists on board that we could and ensuring everyone had adequate training, that kind of thing. That's phenomenal, man. I think just like hearing all that and, see, and knowing that this is on the other end of the spectrum, knowing that, okay, this was the challenges we went through, but we was able to get beyond it just by just working hard and having, you know, having great leadership within the pharmacy department, great leadership within the ED and everyone just banding together. So that's like a really unique because again, most places would love to say that they have all of those components, but I, I, I speak to some of the Twitter, you know, inboxes I get and Instagram inboxes I get about different challenges that people are going through. That's not the case. So again, shout out to everyone there to kind of help make this what it was. And it's pretty cool that you've been able to get through it, but and see the challenges. So for everyone listening to this, they know, hey, you may have to get risk management involved a little earlier or you see if you can know someone rub some elbows and try to figure out some different things and see the things that they're concerned about. Now think about that a lot. Like, okay, if they're worried about this component, how can I alleviate that? And it seemed like you guys did a lot of that with these different strategies and having people on board. So that's like really, really cool just to see how something that was an idea, again, started in residency for you, go through the whole gamut of, okay, we're, we're playing this game where if there's no one looking and if everyone's busy and, you know, we can kind of, go, it's legal, we can go ahead and, and, and get through with that to making it something that's like, set in stone. And I think most people feel comfortable in that. And it was pretty cool to hear that how you guys also made it to where this is not something we're going to push upon everyone. Only for those that's going to be uh, interested in this can go through it. and having something that everyone knows what's going on. Uh, nursing staff know when you walk up with that badge that you can, you can push that medication when they're literally holding someone down or something like that. So that's, that's pretty, that's pretty unique. Um, can, can I just in it, one thing that's really helpful if you're running into problems engage engage the frontline workers that, that want this the support from our emergency medicine nursing leadership and our emergency medicine medical providers who all wanted this was a really strong um, factor in kind of coming back to risk who's really not in this practice site that often and saying hey everybody's on board for this. It's not clear why there's barriers. You know what I mean? So that's a cool thing. And I think we mentioned it a little bit, but just for the audience, again, just to show that the major benefit, if you can just kind of, you know, bear down like the two or three major benefits of this policy in general, just in case people didn't hear it through the rest of what we talked about, what are the major benefits of this, this policy? Well, I think more study needs to happen to actually show the hard outcomes that are associated with this, but you're going to reduce time to life-saving intervention in your critically ill patient. 
I mean, just in theory, that's a great thing. I've personally utilized it to need to RSI patients. You might be transporting patients and they need epi and the nurse is on the chest and it's just you, a nurse and a transporter. And, you know, guess what? Epi equals more ROSC. I mean, the simple fact that you are extending the amount of skilled healthcare workers in your emergency department where you need to be able to handle any amount of influx of patients is a huge value add. I don't know if you've kept up recently, but we seem to be out of some types of healthcare workers after mm-hmm. COVID. I mean, huge exodus of pharmacists, huge exodus of nurses and physicians. So you need to have everyone who is capable of providing care ready to provide that care. Uh, and this could be a massive, even if you do this training, you never use it. And we get one mass casualty incident where we have 40 patients showing up at once and they need NEBS and maybe IMEPI or whatever. You now have one additional person who is trained to treat X amount of number of patients, increasing your capacity to give the best care to each one of those patients. That's amazing. And I think this is going to be one of those things that really, I think of it like when you think about res- taking residents on and kind of being involved in that and how your resident actually made the training for the state. Uh, this is something that is unique where if you want to receive, you know, training in this particular area, you guys are doing it, other places are doing it as well, but you really can see your intervention. A lot of times where you're saying, hey, this is the medication we want to use for RSI. My nurse is doing this. I can draw it up, get a double check, go ahead and get this done. You really understand medications a lot more, I would say. You understand that adverse effects. You understand things a little bit more in depth. It's it's more personal, I would say, when you're the, you're the person that's doing this and everyone's looking at, at you. So I think it's unique to learn. I think it's a unique skill to, to have. And I early in my career, I was very, very, very like gun-ho. Like this is or one of my format. This is one of my form uh, form academic, you know, uh, areas of competency. I had to get this done. I had to spend time a week with a nurse to get this stuff checked off. And I was like, gun ho. Like, if I can't do this, I can't practice. And I think now being exposed to other people's practice and the things that they had to go to to get to a certain point is really unique. I would say that it's just such a variation as you saw in the people's practice. And this is something that again you can really see your intervention, you know, go from brain to vein when it comes to this. So this is a pretty unique thing. So again, I I don't want to make this too long of an episode because I I think people really already got a significant amount of value right there. What are your closing thoughts when it comes to medication administration for pharmacists and and just where we're at right now? Again, this is going to be right around the time of mid-year when this comes out. So a lot of stuff's going to be going on. So what are your just your closing thoughts on that and just where we're at right now in this time? Yeah. Well, I think if you're interested in medication administration at your practice site, having an institutional policy to protect you and give you reassurance when you need to do something to save your patient is a great step. It doesn't necessarily need to have, uh, you know, be written out word for word in the law. You could certainly reach out to your board of pharmacy or you can galvanize with other areas that actually need to give medications too, like ambulatory care and outpatient care and get together, find your local lobbying group. You might have a state organization that probably has a lawyer on file, uh, the Pharmacy Society of Blank State, whatever you want. And those are a great connection to find out if they can help connect you with your legislators and figure out if you can change your laws around. But even if you can't, there are other ways around it. And if you do want to implement 
get some support from your frontline staff, emergency nurses, and your emergency physicians who are going to be great advocates in getting this up the pole through the C-suite and through the 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 uh, defenders and risk management, and which is a great thing to have. They want to make sure the hospital is staying safe, but uh, you're going to want support along the way. And recognize not everyone is going to necessarily buy in, although I think if you look at how people are practicing in the emergency department, it just makes sense that we should be able to take ownership of this when we need to. Yeah, that's 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 great. And I just thank you guys again for listening. This is something that, again, it's been on my mind. and I've been waiting for someone much smarter than me to kind of go through and, and make make their process. So. I'm going to put everything that I possibly can in our show notes. Again, access to, to Ron's podcast. Again, his Twitter. Uh, all of these things will be on our, on our show notes. So you really can, can get, get more of his expertise. And I think like when if people, if you don't know someone who's like certified as a bat, I would like to call them. If you don't know one, you, you need to get one in your cell phone right now because again, they're life saving. <laughs> uh, I have people, I have like three, I have three a bats in my phone. I was like, Hey, this came in. I think I'm smart, but let me ask you because I know it's not as simple. And the past that exam is really, really a stable, especially with the EM uh, bullet certification coming out in January. So um, thank you for coming on, Ryan. This has like been a wealth of knowledge, especially going through the process of all of this, letting pharmacists know and help other healthcare professionals. Hey, you may want your pharmacist to do this. And you didn't know that they could. This may be an episode that they can listen to to get the, the juices flowing. So uh, definitely appreciate all the the knowledge. Any any last things as we, we get ready to close out? No, thanks for having me on. I love the show and uh, appreciate getting to talk about this topic. Perfect, guys. Again, you can definitely catch us again, formsoheart.com. And if you guys looking for uh, any little pearls and things of that nature that we do, again, our, our sister blog, Pharmacy Frothy Pearls, will be out there. Again, you can just type that into Google. You should better find that as well. You can catch me on Twitter, formd underscore in the ed. And you know how I close it out, guys, every single time. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ed. Everything you do, make sure you form so hard. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. Perfect, perfect, perfect.